uncommon sense advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. Hi, I'm Marty Nemco. Um, Halloween's coming around the corner, and um, one of my new books is called Dark, stories about a darker side of life, and uh, some of them which seem appropriate for, not for kids, for sure, but for adults around Halloween, either for your own enjoyment or if you're going to have people over or whatever, maybe even have some, be stimulative of conversation. Anyway, there's about a half dozen of them, and they get more and more uh, horrific as we go on. First one is called Kisser. The doorbell rang at 3 a.m. I opened the door to find a wicker basket. In it, wrapped in a blanket, was a puppy. I work full-time. Who has time for a dog? Even if I got a dog sitter, that's expensive. And then there are the nights and weekends. And the training. Who has time? Who wants pee and poop in the house? So cute as the puppy was, I steeled myself, carried him into the car, and drove to the pound. He would not get off my lap. Indeed, the more I drove, the more he curled up in my lap. And then he fell asleep on my lap. Still, I was not going to have a dog. I pulled into the pound's parking lot, saw the entrance. It reminded me of Auschwitz. I pursed my lips and lifted the puppy with one hand and started to reach for the car door with the other hand. And then, damn it, the puppy licked my face. I just couldn't do it. I closed the car door. Yeah, with the puppy and me inside. I named him based on just he just did. My forever companion would be named Kisser. But if it was one thing I wouldn't let Kisser do is disrupt my sleep. So even before I got home, I went to the pet store, got a crate and a cushion to put inside it. Add the food, the collar, the leash, the tax, and I was out $247. And that was before the vet visit. Kisser was perfectly healthy, but needed spaying and shots, another 300 bucks. I read on the internet how important it is to begin housebreaking immediately, and to count on it taking a week. So, damn it, I took a week off from work. And every time Kisser got up from his nap, I carried him outside to the pee place and waited, and waited. Finally, success followed instantly by a treat and massive praise. But despite my diligence, Kisser had a few accidents, including one vomit. But yeah, after a week, he was trained. But Kisser would not sleep in his crate. The first night, I put him in, and within seconds, he was whimpering, the sweetest damn whimper you ever heard. I needed to sleep, so I moved the crate from the kitchen to my bedroom. He still whimpered, and whimpered. At some godforsaken hour, I got up, put a towel on the far corner of the bed. I was not going to have pee or, or poop on my blanket. And I lowered him onto the towel. Immediately, he stopped whimpering, curled up, and went to sleep. He was doing a great job of training me. The only thing, by the time I got up in the morning, Kisser was no longer at the foot of the bed. He was curled up around my warmest spot, my crotch. And when I started to get up, he jumped on me, licked my face. We went out, and he did his business like a pro. After a week, I was grateful I had Kisser. I could see why they call a dog a man's best friend. So you can imagine how I felt when after eight days, the doorbell rang. It was a neighbor, and she said, I had just gotten a puppy when, in the middle of the night, I got a call from a hospital 200 miles away. My dad had a heart attack. I was frantic. I was so frantic, I forgot to leave you a note, and I forgot all about the dog. My dad died, and we had the funeral, and when I came back and I saw the crate, I remembered, I am so, so sorry, so, so sorry. Thank you so much for taking care of my puppy. Can I have him back now? Anyway, that story is called Kisser. 
The next one is called My Toupee. I didn't want to go. After all, parties had never worked for me. In fact, nothing had ever worked for me. I was 21 and still a virgin. But everyone still told me, my friends, my parents, my grandmother, for God's sake, that I had to keep getting out there. So I took a deep breath and went in. Everyone was smiling, laughing, seeming so natural. I stood in the corner for a while and then forced myself to amble, not too eager, toward a group that didn't seem too intimidating. Not the pretty people, not the gigglers, just three normal people chatting. I stood a few feet from them and tried to establish eye contact. I tried one girl, but she didn't notice me, or maybe she did and rejected me. I tried looking at another one. This time it was a guy to avoid looking like I was hitting on a girl, and he held my eyes for a moment. I figured that was all I could expect, so I took a step toward the group. That girl was talking about her plans for grad school. The guy chimed in. I'm in enough student debt already, and I nodded. The other girl said, and these days it's degree proliferation. Even a master's degree makes employers yawn. We smiled, but knew that wasn't funny. I asked the grad school bound girl, so what are you going to study? She said, computer science, artificial intelligence, you know, where the jobs are. I nodded, but felt like such a loser. I had taken intro to computer science and didn't understand most of it. I had to cheat my way to a C. So I decided I'd better major in something like sociology or media studies. I think they saw my face drop, so I excused myself and got a drink. Rest of the evening, like all parties, didn't go any better for me, so I left early. I was stressed out, and a shower is one of the few places I feel relaxed. So even though I didn't need a shower, I took one. When I got out, I looked in the mirror and asked myself, what is wrong with me? Am I trying too hard? Not hard enough? Should I memorize jokes to tell at the next party? Then I did something I had been scared to do. Look at myself in the mirror hard. My hair being wet made clear that my hairline had already started to recede. I took a handheld mirror so I could see the back. A bald spot was already forming. Was that the problem? Should I get a toupee? I thought, that's stupid. Only idiotic characters on TV wear a toupee. But the idea stayed with me because that was a more doable solution than trying to change my personality or my major to something more impressive than sociology. So I decided to get a consultation. It wouldn't cost anything to get information. You know, knowledge is power and all that. But where? I searched Yelp. It was the year 2005, and Yelp had just started. And I saw that The Full Head already had a dozen reviews, which averaged 4.5 stars. When I got there... The waiting room's walls were covered with before and after pictures. Wow! And the cute receptionist asked if I'd like something to drink while I was waiting. I knew that was just business, but I was starved for female attention, so it felt good. When I got into the consultation room, a handsome guy smiled and said, Yup, I'm wearing one. You're Joe, right? I nodded, and he continued. Joe, it's great you've come while you still have most of your hair. People will just say you look great, well-rested or something. He then asked, What's the main reason you've come in? Career, self-esteem, romance? I smiled at the latter, and he said, Joe, that's the most common reason, and it works. I knew I was dealing with a master salesman, but I was open to being sold. He pulled out a photo album and said, Of course, we have lots of styles, but there are three I think would look wonderful on you. I had heard that in funeral homes, salespeople always show three caskets, enough to give choice, not so many you're overwhelmed. He asked, Do any of these call out to you? I pointed to one, and before I knew it, I had bought a $3,000 hairpiece. I'm not surprised they avoid the word toupee, whatever you call it. I can't say it turned me into a chick magnet, but within a month, I was no longer a virgin. 
And despite my sociology major, I somehow felt more confident in job interviews, and I did get hired as a community relations specialist for a bank. My job was mainly to address complaints and to hold events like free workshops on financial literacy and on home ownership. Usually, we held them at the bank, but for Father's Day, we did one as a picnic in a nearby park. It was cool that morning, so I wore a light sweater, but by noon I needed to pull it off. I tried to be careful, but lifting it was enough to push the sides of my hairpiece up so it looked like it had wings. Someone pointed to me, which made another person take out her camera. She must have sent it to the newspaper. Everyone knows that the media likes to do hit pieces on banks. Two days later, as I'm drinking my morning coffee at home, I open the newspaper to see that JPEG of me. The headline? A phony banker. I pulled off my hairpiece and stared at my now quite bald self in the mirror. Do I go au naturel? I'm terrified to do that, but I'm terrified to wear it. What would you do? Anyway, that story is called My Toupee. The next story is called The Garden Club. We meet in a member's garden. Julia's. Around the fire pit. We loved our meetings, if it weren't for Eleanor. Not two minutes would go by before Eleanor would brag about her garden or ridicule ours, and one night, Julia caught Eleanor spraying Julia's prized roses with herbicide. But it was too late. Julia lost the gorgeous and rare roses, sheer elegance, black magic, and Eve Piaget, dead, gone. We politely asked Eleanor to quit. We're not sure that we're the best fit for you. But at the next meeting, there was Eleanor, more obnoxious than ever. She told one member, You're a senile old biddy who can't even grow a marigold. Well, that was the last straw. By acclamation, we agreed to expel Eleanor from the club. But Eleanor seethed, You do that and I'll sue your asses. I'll be at your meeting till the day I die. She didn't know how right she was. We debated what to do. Let her stay and ruin our club? Try to get a restraining order? The judge would laugh us out of court. You're taking up the court's time because you don't like a member of your garden club? So we decided we needed to get rid of Eleanor. You would serve the common good, not just our clubs. But if she was so damaging to a garden club, she was probably even more so to more important things and people. We know plants, and so we put poppy extract in her tea. Yes, the same kind as in The Wizard of Oz. It's an opioid. That put her into a deep sleep, and then we burned her in the fire pit. The police interviewed us, but it was perfunctory. After all, we're just a bunch of senile old biddies. When the cops left, we celebrated by sprinkling Eleanor's ashes around the plants. It's good fertilizer, high in potash. Anyway, that story's called The Garden Club. The next story, and now these get darker and darker. Uh, I think there's three more. This one is called Just When You Feel Safest. Jen was the smartest one in the room. At most staff meetings, she had the best ideas, often topping others. The unfortunate, as you'll see, very unfortunate side effect is that she made others feel less than, which is a no-no in today's workplace. So when I restructuring resulted in three of the team losing their job, they couldn't help but think that Jen's showing off contributed. One day, Jen was at her desk, the place she felt most comfortable, and a plastic bomb had been, that had been placed under her keyboard exploded, giving her first-degree burns on her hands. Wrapped in aluminum foil was a note. Remember Psycho? She felt safest in her shower until there. She was stabbed to death. Restructure yourself out of a job, or else. The police took the usual report and investigated, of course, in interviewing the three laid-off workers, but all had solid alibis. You see, one of them had hired one of the janitors to do the dirty work. In a week, 
the case joined the 95% that ended up in the cold case file. Two months passed, and Jen, having refused to quit her good job, was relaxed driving home. She had long felt her car was what she called my island of sanity. The peace was broken when a bomb that had been placed in the seat back pocket exploded, burning and wrenching her back. A foil-wrapped nose said, Quit your job or else, and the investigation turned up nothing. A year later, in the shower, the shower head exploded, bloodying her face. This time, Jen quit, but despite her being the smartest one in the room, she couldn't land a decent job. During the interview, she'd be asked, why'd you leave your previous job? She wanted to answer honestly, and the interviewer's response inevitably would be something like, well, won't that person keep doing it to you again? And Jen remained unemployed for a year and scared for life. Anyway, that story is called Just When You Feel Safest. The next story is called A Dose of Reality. This one is based on a true story. Really, that's it is. Only irrelevant details have been changed. Tom got a doctorate in education, and everyone was sure he'd become a professor, preparing graduate students for a career as a K-12 teacher. But in Tom's fieldwork, it was clear to him that he was far from a master teacher. He couldn't even control difficult students. Tom had learned a lot of theory, but too little that was practical. So after completing his doctorate, he decided he needed to get practical experience to see if he could become a good teacher. So he took a job at one of Boston's high schools that are sanitizingly called Challenged. It soon became clear to Tom that many of the students, especially the active boys, had a hard time sitting through a 50-minute period, and especially the double periods that education experts advocate. So Tom decided that during a double period, he would take his class on a little field trip. The problem was that half the students didn't return the parent permission slip. It wasn't that the parents or guardians weren't willing to sign. The slips too often didn't get to them. Tom's students said they lost it, their parents were away, and so on. He gave them another permission slip, but still many didn't come back. So Tom decided to try a trip with all the kids, even if some didn't have a permission slip. He thought, it's just at a nearby tide pool. He rented a 15-person van and packed his class into it. If a bit scrunched, they'd all fit in the van, because while his class size was officially 22, on the average day, only 15 or so would show. And everyone had a great time. And to ensure that they were addressing the mandated common core curriculum, they discussed and Tom gave assignments that tied the trip to academic learning. So a week later, they did another trip. This time, it was a behind-the-scenes tour of a bakery. Another success. Unfortunately, the third time, when the kids were getting into the van, this time to go to a museum, the principal saw them aghast. Mr. Johnson, don't you know that our insurance doesn't cover that? And did you get permission slips from all the parents? Tom murmured no. She pulled him aside and said, I am initiating termination procedures. You are endangering your students. Of course, Tom was sad, scared, but also angry. He wanted a better service students, and as a result, he was getting fired. So that very Friday, he asked his class, Who'd like to spend the weekend in my apartment with my family? Nearly everyone raised their hand. There wasn't enough room in Tom's apartment for all the students, but his classroom aide volunteered to let some stay with her. The next morning, Tom asked his aide, So how'd it go? She said, Two of them raped me. Tom lamented not just the loss of his job, but that he had tried so hard to be a good teacher, and his aide was so kind, so patient. How could two of the students do that? How dare they? Tom thought, I am not sure what to believe anymore. The teachers' union defended Tom, but he lost his job anyway. He thought about taking some innocuous job like clerk in a bookstore, but he ended up accepting a job at a university 
teaching prospective students. Anyway, that story is called A Dose of Reality. The next story, uh, second to the last, is two more. This one is called Hire the Best. Infused with liquid courage, I pulled out the button I had been too scared to wear in public. Hire the best. I thought, I'm lonely. If I wear this button, it'll be a screen. Today, most people will hate it because it implies I value merit over diversity. But the rare person who likes it might be friend material. So, except at work, I started wearing it everywhere. The usual response from passers-by was silence, looking away or pursed lips and eyes steeled forward. But finally, Lily, a Japanese-American woman, said, I like your button. I said, why? She replied, because ultimately only merit net benefits humankind. And I asked her out for coffee and she agreed. Later, I decided to use the higher the best button as bait. I walk leisurely so oncomers have enough time to process what higher the best means. I kill any passers-by who criticizes it, like the guy who yelled, That's elitist, man! Why do I kill him? I'm not crazy. I want to make a difference. You see, anyone who uses criteria other than merit in hiring makes the world worse. It hurts the products and services we buy, the leaders we elect, the people who get into top colleges and medical schools, and the researchers who could save our lives. I can't change the world, but I can rid it of some of those termites eating away at humankind. I rotate where I walk, always on a busy commercial street, so there's foot traffic, but no homeowners who, if the cops ask, could remember me, let alone describe me. My button hooks them onto my line. My relaxed walk and pleasant expression reels them in a bit. Then I use FBI techniques to get them closer. I momentarily raise my eyebrows, tilt my head, and smile. Those signals suggest that you're harmless and indeed like the person. The FBI uses those techniques to coerce a confession from suspects or to convince a foreign national to spy for the U.S. If those tactics get a person to stop, I'll start the conversation with a comment about the weather, or better, I'll praise something they're wearing, say their doggy is cute, whatever. I'll continue the pleasantry for a minute or two, but lest I seem too eager to befriend them, I'll then say I need to leave. I feign uncomfortability, and I murmur, um, well, I, I'd be pleased to chat further, that is, if you'd like. I invite my mark to email or call me. Most don't, but enough do to make it worth my while. We agree to meet in a public place like a Starbucks. It takes time to get him to be comfortable enough for me to come on my boat. My cottage sits on an isolated cove, and I dock my boat there. For my disposal trips, to reassure the mark, I wear a Hawaiian shirt. I show caring by asking if they had trouble finding the place, showing empathy if they did, and praising him if they didn't. Once I get my mark on board, I offer a drink spiked with poison that disables the person in minutes. I had tried thallium and compound 1080, both of which are tasteless, odorless, and water-soluble, but both acted a little too slowly, so I found something else. Lest you use it for a non-meritorious reason, I won't tell you what it is. I take a route out to sea that avoids anyone seeing us. I go out far enough that the body will be impossible to find. When the victim is dead, I put on gloves to avoid any of their DNA staying on me. Dump the body into the ocean, wipe down the boat to eliminate any other DNA, fingerprint, or fabric fibers, put each glove and my clothes into a bag, add a rock so it'll sink, and a half mile from the body, toss it into the sea. I put my fingerprints back on the boat so it looks like I'm the only one who's been on board. I put it on an identical set of clothes, return home, take a shower to be sure there's no traces. No one ever finds out. One time, a victim had told a friend about a guy she was planning to go boating with, 
and, along with other boat owners in the area, a detective interviewed me and CSI types checked out my boat. But, of course, they never found a thing. I've now done it 14 times, and I'll keep doing it until I die. It's the most pro-social way I can live my life. Of course, I've hidden all this from Lily. Anyway, that story uh, is called Hire the Best. That's the name of the button, of course. I guess there are two more stories still. Birth and Death is the next one. Yes, I had told Victoria I wanted children, and at the time I did. I was infatuated with her, with the idea of having and raising a child, and maybe having someone to care for us in our old age. The desire to have kids was fueled by our friends who had them. They emphasized the positives, if only not to seem like cold or bad parents. And of course, our grandparents were salivating for grandkids. But then worries intruded. Bye-bye freedom. Waking up in the middle of the night, fighting with the kid about homework. Will I even be a good parent? My job isn't that secure. Can we afford to have a baby? And what if our baby isn't normal? I decided to not say any of that to Vicky. I could just imagine a reaction. What? You said you wanted a baby. So what do you want to do now? Get an abortion? No. I could picture her screaming, then crying, then miserable through her pregnancy, and blaming me forever for spoiling her motherhood. My worry about an abnormal baby was justified. Lou Jr. was born with an APCAR score of 6, which predicts low IQ. The first time Vicky and I had sex after Lou was born, my erection wasn't as hard as usual. And over the next months, I became softer and softer until I couldn't have intercourse. In frustration, Victoria said, You're doing this to punish me. Of course that wasn't true, and I got so angry I did something I thought I'd never do. I slapped her in the face, hard. Even in retrospect, I sort of feel she deserved it. But I do recognize that hitting a woman is strictly verboten. In the next months, we didn't even try to have sex, and our relationship declined further, in part because we didn't have sex available to balm life's problems. And atop regular problems, there was Lou, who was difficult, low IQ or not. He was what Victoria called fussy, which was an understatement. And yes, once at 3 a.m., when Lou was already six months old and was up yelling half the night, and when I finally got back to bed exhausted after unsuccessfully trying to calm him, I actually said it, you know, Vicky, Lou is a nightmare. Victoria C., that hurts me more than even the slap. Much more. A month later, the night before the garbage was to be picked up, Vicky expanded on a Lorena bobbin. She poisoned my dinner and then, with the help of my chainsaw, cut me up, threw me into big black plastic bags and into the bottom of the trash bin, and she got away with it. She simply told the cops I had gone for a walk and never returned. The investigation turned up nothing, so the cops assumed it was just another case of a spouse walking out, and they tossed that case into the cold case file. I'm writing to you from purgatory, hoping that Vicky feels at least ambivalent about what she did. The final story is called Affirmative Actions. March 15, 2017. Kevin was diagnosed with incipient sociopathy. September 13, 2019. Kevin wasn't selected as president of his high school's math club. Furious, he knocked over his desk. At home, he drew a caricature of the winner, splattered it with red paint, and hid it in his journal, which he hid inside a slit in his box spring. March 15, 2023. Despite a 4.0 GPA and having been published three times in the American Journal of Bioweaponry as an undergraduate, a record, Kevin wasn't chosen to speak at graduation. He chose not to attend the ceremony. Rather, in the middle of the night, on the Live and Excel sign at the Molecular Biology Building's entrance, with blood-red spray paint, he covered the V in Live, so that the sign read, Lie and Excel. May 21st, 2035, 4 o'clock p.m. 
The chair of the bioweapons department told Kevin that this year's tenure slot went to someone else. Kevin exploded, insisting, I am infinitely more qualified. Evenly, the chair said, as you know, Kevin, unfortunately, it is up or out. If when you're up for tenure, you don't get it, you need to leave. You can stay until the end of June. 4.01 p.m. Kevin removed the most virulent and airborne communicable bioweapon from his lab's freezer, put it into the irradiator to create mutated versions, and inoculated 200 mice, 50 each with one of the four mutations that under electron microscopy and flow cytometry seemed most likely to be lethal. May 22nd, incubation period. May 23rd, he cultured the mutation that killed the most mice, 48 of 50. Then, using machine learning gene editing software, he altered that virus to maximize its airborne transmissibility. He filled three tiny vials with it, enough to infect and later kill hundreds of people, who in turn would infect thousands, who then would infect millions, who in turn would kill billions. He cut open the seam of his wallet's inner lining and sealed it with glue that allowed the seam to be easily opened. He drove to the furthest parking lot in JFK Airport in New York City. He got on the shuttle bus wearing an N95 mask that inside had a second, even more protective filter, opened his wallet and surreptitiously opened one vial. By the time the bus arrived at the international terminal, the bus full of people headed all over the globe, having had breathed a fatal dose with its one-day incubation period and went all over the globe. Kevin then bought a ticket to Beijing, which stopped in L.A. He duplicated the process at LAX and then at Beijing Airport. May 24th, in his hotel room in Beijing, Kevin took pleasure in watching President Chelsea Clinton on TV urging calm. Anyway, that story is called Affirmative Actions. Anyway, as you can see, those stories are pretty darn dark. Not right for kids, but perhaps for a... Uh, uh, they're scary. These stories are scary because they have enough reality to them. They're not about ghosts and goblins so that they could actually be scary if you're looking to be scared on Halloween. In any event, I do thank you for watching. I welcome your thumbs up, accept your thumbs down. I always look forward to your comments, especially like it if you hit the share button below. Share on your social media so that my efforts can have broader impact. And I am flattered if you choose to subscribe to my channel, either on YouTube or uh, my podcast, which are available on, obviously, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Spotify. I like to end all of my podcasts with the same quote, which I find more valuable these days than ever in my life. Uh, it is not mine. It's from Frank A. Clark, and he wrote, We find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. For comments on the show or to consult with Dr. Marty Nemko, his email address is mnemko at comcast.net. Post-production of How to Do Life by Terry Rouse. Music by Blue Dot Session. Thanks for listening.